Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. In mainstream media, the debate around the China-Pakistan economic corridor often ends up being about are you a patriot or are you a traitor? With those who ask critical questions or talk about different issues with the project being labeled as traitors or agents or something else. I invited Dr. Tayyip Safdar, a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Virginia, to talk about the China-Pakistan economic corridor, whether it is indeed leading to a debt trap for Pakistan, and what are the issues that Pakistan must deal with to fully maximize the opportunities presented by the China-Pakistan economic corridor. This was a fascinating discussion where we talked about China's geopolitical ambitions, the relationship between the two countries, and how and why China prefers dealing bilaterally with countries behind the public eye and scrutiny. If you like our content, please do subscribe to our YouTube channel or the podcast, and do share with your friends and family. Here's Dr. Tayyip Safdar. Dr. Safdar, welcome to Pakistanomy. Thank you, Zahir. How are you? I'm doing well, and thanks for taking out the time today. I know it's early morning for you and for both of us, actually, but this is an interesting topic, so I'm looking forward to the discussion. I want to jump right in and, and start with this question that, you know, in mainstream uh, conversations in Pakistan, there's this dichotomy, right, that either you are pro-CPEC or anti-CPEC, and if you're pro, you're a patriot. If you're anti, you're a traitor. And in the last few years, that debate has picked up, particularly also led by comments made here in the United States about Chinese debt trap in business press around the world. Malaysia, for example, did similar things with uh, Dr. Mahathir Mohamed when he came to power a few years ago. Um, you are a re- you've done research on this from both the BRI lens as well as the CPEC lens. And we saw in CPEC phase one, when Pakistan invested heavily in large road networks, power plants, that yes, those were needed investments in Pakistan, debt also went up significantly. So tell us a bit about CPEC and how do you see it? Is this something that is uh, ushering in a new debt trap for Pakistan? Or is this something in between where Pakistan needs these investments, but really can do a lot better with what it's doing right now in, in terms of how the uh, corridor is structured? Uh, thank you. That, that's, uh, that's a very interesting question. And you're very right, you know, the, the time that I spent in Pakistan, uh, it does emerge as, you know, it's either you're for this or you're against this. And there's no nuance uh, either in the popular media or in a lot of the academic work that comes out on the topic as well. One would expect that, you know, having been five years old, uh, there's a little more nuance that, you know, sort of uh, enters into the conversation, but that's not happening. And that's partly because of the geopolitics surrounding uh, CPEC as well. Um, so initially, you know, if you look at the long-term plan of CPEC, the, uh, the, the period from 2015 to 2020, uh, or the early harvest phase as it's called, uh, was supposed to deal with some of the supply-side bottlenecks that you've identified, right? You did that with uh, the transport infrastructure, improved the transport infrastructure. Uh, and secondly, you dealt with the crippling uh, power shortage that affected Pakistan you know, since 2009, uh, if not before. Uh, so those were the, that, that was the plan. And and if you look at the, how it's evolved, uh, it has dealt with the power shortage to a large extent. Uh, one can always, uh, you know, sort of uh, to have a conversation about whether it has done it in the most efficient manner, but they have dealt with the power shortage. And that was the one point in which the Pakistan Muslim League, Nawaz, actually came into 
power. Now that those supply side, you know, sort of issues have tapered off, uh, much of the current account deficit that was initially, you know, sort of that went up quite substantially because of these investments has tapered off as well. Um, I think this whole debt trap, uh, you know, sort of thesis is problematic at multiple levels, at least in the case of Pakistan, you know, there are a lot of, sort of structural weaknesses uh, that affect the economy. You've got the twin deficit, you've got the fiscal deficit as well as the current account deficit, which has been a perpetual problem as far as Pakistan is concerned. Uh, you've got weak growth in exports. Uh, you know, you have perpetual issues with foreign reserves as well. So all of these problems, these structural issues, you know, sort of combined uh, that, that, that had, the, the, therefore the, the, the new government had to actually go to the IMF as well. Um, you know, um, the, the issue, and, and I'll give you some examples of, of how, uh, you know, the lack of nuance there is. So for example, in 2019, uh, you know, at the Woodrow Wilson Institute, Alice Wells, who was the chief, uh, you know, sort of uh, diplomat dealing with South Asia, one of the statements that she actually made, and I'd just like to read it, is people in Pakistan are beginning to ask tough questions about CPEC and the kind of deals that their government struck with communist China, uh, and what Pakistan really gains from this sort of a relationship. Uh, similarly, uh, a 2020 book which recently came out uh, by Siegfried Wolf, who's based uh, in, uh, in Germany, uh, you know, asked some really interesting questions. So, so his conclusion is, uh, CPEC reduces economic freedom, is geopolitical as opposed to economic, gives rise to corruption, debt trap, loss of uh, political sovereignty, and presents a challenge to the rule-based international order. Uh, so those are the kind of, you know, sort of, uh, that's the kind of discourse that's, that's surrounding uh, CPEC, at least in the international, you know, sort of sphere. Uh, now the debt trap, uh, you know, sort of thesis is problematic at multiple levels. Uh, one, uh, if you look at Chinese sources, there's a lot of literature on this as well. Uh, and Wang Yi, the, the foreign minister from China, has often said uh, that CPEC is the flagship project of uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, right? Uh, so the Chinese say that it's the Belt and Road Initiative. So whatever happens in CPEC matters for them. So they would not want it to be seen as something which is ensnaring a country uh, into a dead trap. And they do not want to, you know, sort of uh, take over uh, the assets uh, that are, you know, sort of linked uh, to, 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 to those sort of things. In a way, in a way, it's CPEC is not, uh, Pakistan is not Sri Lanka and Gwadar is not Hambantota. If one were to summarize what the Chinese foreign minister is saying, that we won't be doing the same things or in the same manner, to say the least, in terms of what went down in Sri Lanka. Would that be a fair statement? I think that's, that's uh, uh, thank you very much for bringing Hambantota as well, because that is the poster boy for this whole dead trap thesis. Uh, and there's emerging scholarship that actually challenges this whole view about Hambantota uh, as, you know, the dead trap. So there's a 2020 paper that's been done by Deborah Brockingham, uh, who's at the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins. And she strongly questions this whole notion uh, of uh, the dead trap uh, diplomacy. And she, she actually calls this as, uh, she calls it as the dead trap meme. 
so for her mm. you know this whole uh, discussion about uh, about china taking over uh, hanman tota forcefully or by force is extremely problematic uh, because as with pakistan uh, sri lanka had issues the change of government brought in you know uh, a different set of priorities and in order to you know sort of deal with the pressing uh, foreign exchange issues the government actually you know uh, negotiated this sale or this lease of hanman tota uh, through to this chinese company for 99 years uh, so this is this is problematic and there's a lot of emerging scholarship that actually challenges this whole view of the chinese forcing uh, countries to take up these loans and you know uh, then to take over so in the case of pakistan in the case of the power sector for example uh, there's a 2019 paper study by columbia uh, the center of energy Uh, by Erica Downs that actually questions this further, and they said so. The question that they are try to answer, or she tries to answer, is whether uh, this is a you know sort of uh, diabolical scheme on the part of uh, Beijing to actually ensnare Pakistan into a debt trap uh, and to take over these assets that are being built, or whether these this is a problem as far as part of the structure of Pakistan's electricity uh, sector is concerned, and her. Uh, you know, sort of uh, conclusion is that it's 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 highly unlikely that Beijing actually wanted to ensnare Pakistan into a uh, into this sort of a debt trap, and it's a function of the internal weaknesses of Pakistan's electricity sector, which includes uh, you know providing sovereign uh, guarantee based returns, um, which includes the circular debt, which is this huge uh, you know sort of uh, problem which continues to afflict the power sector. So there's a lot of emerging scholarship that actually questions this whole uh, debt trap narrative the problem with the debt trap narrative is that many of these studies so for example uh, if you look at the world bank's research which came out from 2018 to 2019 uh, you know uh, many of these countries that, that initially started off with these belt and road initiative projects had uh, weak fundamentals just as pakistan did so therefore for when you uh, had many of these projects kicking in so quickly the absorption capacity of a lot of these questions these countries was limited which meant that the overall debt uh, went up which then led to multiple issues as far as the economy is concerned and in the case of pakistan we've seen that we had to go to uh, the imf you know again uh, going to the imf is not something uh which which is rare in the case of it precedes it precedes the china pakistan economic exactly. corridor as well right but i think the debt trap point is is interesting and just wanted to add something here as well that it wasn't just alice wells or the united states or folks sitting in germany or elsewhere raising that point right then opposition leader imran khan now prime minister talked about debt trap um then opposition leader former finance minister and now planning minister asad umar used to talk about transparency for cpec um and so you had uh, for commerce advisor um razak daud famously quoted in the financial yeah. times that led to bajwa's visit to uh, to china um talked about slowing down cpec so it came from within pakistan as well and so you know and and my point and many others uh, also raised that point within and outside pakistan was that taking on debt in and of itself isn't bad if you're a college student going to college and getting an mba let's say that's not you're taking on debt but that's not bad debt but if you're that same 22 year old who is borrowing on a credit card to buy a mustang that is yeah. bad debt right and so there there's there's a there's a debate that must be had on that but my question to you on that was that you know 
the power deals Pakistan did sign and there was talk about IPPs and renegotiating with Pakistani IPPs to reduce their ROI and, and, and returns. Um, similar negotiations have to occur ultimately with China as well. The circular debt is out of control and it has to be reformed, not just by paying it back the way Nawaz Sharif did in 2013, 2014 yeah. by raising debt, um, but you have to deal with the chronic challenges within the sector. Do you think, uh, you know, from your research and your analysis of how China behaves, that Chinese investors and the Chinese government will renegotiate these power contracts and will that be an easy negotiation for Pakistan? So I don't think there'll be easy negotiations as far as Pakistan is concerned. And that's also a function of the fact that you've been doing something in a particular way for the last so many years. Uh, you know, since the mid-1990s, you're used to these IPP contracts where you've been given these sovereign guarantees, you've been giving extremely high rates of return. So the view from Islamabad as far as the power bureaucracy is concerned is uh, that, you know, we are not able to attract investment if we do not offer certain guarantees. So therefore, it's for us, it's a problem as far as getting investment is concerned. So it's not as if we want to give these sovereign guarantees or we want to give these exorbitant uh, rates of return. return. Uh, it's just that you know people uh, do not want to invest in that country. Now, as far as China is concerned, as I said earlier, I completely agree with you. Uh, as far as uh, you know, the problems are concerned, uh, the rates of return are are high. Uh, they're indexed to the U.S. dollar, which means that when whenever there is a bout of uh, you know depreciation as has taken place over the last year or a year and a half, uh, the cost of electricity goes up. The, even if it's the cheapest source of electricity, which is hydropower, for example, uh, if it's seven cents. Um, with the ROE, you know, sort of back to the US dollar. Uh, whenever there's going to be depreci depreciation, the cost of electricity is going to go up. So there is a definite need to renegotiate some of these contracts. As far as Beijing is concerned, uh, I don't think they would be ready to negotiate. The problem, I think, is was that, uh, that there's a lack of understanding about how these negotiations, you know, sort of take place. Uh, for better or for worse, the, the way that the Chinese system works is that it's a bilateral, uh, you know, negotiation away from the public eye. So the lack of transparency that you uh, allude to is, is, you know, an issue as far as the way that things are done uh, in the case of uh, China and its relationship with many of these countries. And, and just to sorry, quickly interject that that uh, from what I'm hearing from you is that the lag of transparency is not because of some nefarious reason. It's just a function of how China functions in its bilateral relationships, particularly around the BRI. Yes. So not only in the BRI. So again, I go back to uh, the literature. So for example, if you look at again, Gautam's uh, work uh, on Africa, and there's a new paper that's just come out uh, from their work. Uh, they talk about how, you know, uh, the renegotiation takes place between countries on a bilateral level away from the public eye uh, because that's the way that the system, you know, sort of works. Uh, and again, because they, they have quite a comprehensive uh, database, their uh, research actually shows that in all of these processes of renegotiation uh, in, uh, in the case of Africa, uh, there has never been... Uh, you know, there have never been efforts to actually take over assets uh, or, you know, sort of go towards arbitration or anything of that sort. So it's, it's, it's handled amicably uh, at 
uh, at a bilateral level. Now, that's not to say that, that's, that the Chinese are not, uh, you know, sort of tough taskmasters and there's not a tough negotiation process that takes place. However, uh, there are precedents of these sort of renegotiations taking place. And I would not be surprised if that takes, uh, if those sort of, you know, renegotiations take place as far as uh, um, CPEC and these power projects are concerned. Because at the end of the day, the problem, as you rightly alluded to, is uh, that you took all of this money, you developed all of this infrastructure, you expected the economy to take off for whatever reasons, after you put in this uh, excess capacity into the system, which has not happened. So now you're saddled with a lot of capacity um, and uh, the offtake is not taking place. So what do you do? Uh, you either renegotiate these contracts, you either go towards uh, a longer time horizon as far as the, the sort of debt component of these uh, these deals is concerned uh, or you just say you know I can't pay so I think and again like I think and yeah. sorry to interject again but I think again like from just being a student of project finance and large infrastructure projects that renegotiation the need for that is not anything unique right I remember in grad school studying the Polish highway being financed by the European bank and the mm -hmm. assumptions were flawed and then the project was executed yeah. and you had to renegotiate the debt payments and you had to renegotiate the ROE and, and everything around the financing of the project just because the traffic that was expected to be on that highway was not there. So somebody had to then renegotiate, right? So it's not that it's just a unique phenomenon in terms of the Chinese deals that have been exactly. signed. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So, so you know, looking at those sort of uh, factors, those, those those sort of uh, you know uh, the historical precedent, uh, as well as uh, you know the relationship, the importance of CPEC, uh, I do think that that renegotiation is going to take place sooner or later, uh, and and it, it should take place sooner. And I'll just give you an example. So, on this whole uh, notion of uh, you know uh, the debt trap and everything, so one of the things that's actually uh, uh, you know, sort of written as far as Chinese investments in the power sector is concerned is that the Chinese were very concerned uh, about the circular debt. So one of the things that they actually wrote down and it's, uh, it's written in the official documents is uh, that there's going to be a revolving fund uh, and the Chinese IPPs are going to be paid, uh, you know, earlier before everyone else. That has not happened. So the two power plants that have been operating for the longest, which includes uh, Sahiwal and uh, the Port Kassim power plant, uh, you know, they have, they, by, by some estimates, they had not been paid for between three to six months. Uh, that revolving fund never came through. Uh, you know, they, the, the Chinese government did not actually get involved in, in uh, at least initially, to get the payment through to these, uh, to these power plants, despite the fact that these were state-owned enterprises that are a part of these. Uh, that that actually operate these uh, power plants, uh, and eventually, you know, the Pakistanis start paying them between six to nine months later. Um, the problem again is uh, when you pay late. The, within the 2013 power policy, there's an inbuilt clause which says that the you are going to pay uh, the IPPs uh, Kaibor plus 300 basis points, if I'm not wrong. Uh, or 150, well, between 150 to 300 basis points that you're going to pay in terms of, you know, sort of late payments. Uh, so while the IPPs did get, you know, uh, high returns, uh, the Chinese did not, you know, sort of uh, call in that whole 
option of uh, declaring, you know, sovereign, uh, whatever, you know, uh, default, which they had worked well within the right to do. Uh, so it's as far as the power sector is concerned, it's 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 a mess. It has to be dealt with. I do think that the Chinese uh, firms that are involved uh, will be uh, receptive to a discussion. But I think again, uh, it has to take place in a way which makes uh, both sides comfortable. I think this whole getting things out into the open and then trying to renegotiate. Uh, has its advantages as well because it puts pressure on the other side. Uh, however, it creates uh, ill will as well, in my opinion, which is problematic as far as the long-term you know, sort of uh, relationship is concerned. And when I allude to the long-term relationship, uh, you know, these investments will start making sense uh, if you have more productive investments taking place in the economy. Uh, for those productive investments to actually take place, we've been told over the last five years that you know you, you will have these uh, magical special economic zones that are going to be built uh, um, throughout the country and then the Chinese enterprises will come and invest in these countries. If you want these Chinese investors, these Chinese firms to actually come in and invest in these special economic zones, uh, you've got to you know sort of have a better, Sort of a relationship as far as these universities. Yeah, I think you you don't want you don't want another Shah Mahmood Qureshi type comment on the whole IC type thing, right? And then exactly. have the chief of army going to Saudi Arabia. That would yeah. be unproductive and, and sour the exactly. relationship, at least in the short term. Yeah. Um, I and I think I agree with you on the SEZ's part. I just you know my perspective on this also has been that you also have to be creative about how do you develop your country in the 21st century, right? So for example, you mentioned there is excess power capacity. You've talked about this on, on the podcast with a couple of other guests as well, but that capacity can be either utilized through higher growth led by, for example, SEZs that make things, or it can be used by electrifying your vehicle fleet, right? And providing incentives to it for electrification sure. because you have excess capacity. And it's about... You need clean air in Pakistan, smog in Lahore, Karachi is a known phenomenon. And so I think the, the policymakers also have to rethink and reimagine what development looks like because I don't, at least my view is that the China model of development or the Vietnam model of development as being this global exporter that then brings in foreign exchange reserves and accelerates your growth is not going to work, particularly in a post-COVID world where, you know, we have remote work, we have emerging technologies, 3D printing, etc. And countries like the United States and Europe are rethinking their dependence yeah. on global supply chains, right? So, again, it's again similar to the power dynamic, power sector dynamic. The internal cohesion has to be there in terms of how does Pakistan develop its economy for the betterment of its citizens. Yeah, no, no, that, that's that's a great point. Uh, I completely agree with you. Uh, there has to be a rethinking of uh, the development paradigm as far as Pakistan is concerned. Uh, and there is a lack of, as you rightly point out, there's a lack of uh, imagination as far as, you know, what, what sort of things would actually work. Uh, I would disagree a little bit on on the, 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 the supply chains and the reshoring taking place. So, uh, that is most definitely going to take place as far as Europe and US is concerned. But at the same time, China is going to emerge as this whole, this, you know, sort of uh, massive uh, market as well. Uh, and the China-Pakistan free trade agreement, uh, the second one, uh, you know, sort of gives a certain advantages to Pakistani exporters to actually take advantage of this market as well. 
So I do agree to a certain extent that you know there has to be a rethinking of how you use this excess capacity. But I do think that given the challenges as far as Pakistan is concerned with the you know young population, with the, with the youth bulge, etc., etc., uh, there has to be a focus on you know sort of taking advantages uh, of of uh, industrialization, perhaps not in the same way, but in a more Pakistani way of the way that things evolve. Uh, the problem uh, again is that that the state has to take a very active role in making these policies and then in, in implementing uh, some of these policies as well. Uh, in the case of Pakistan, the state's capacity to actually implement many of these, uh, you know, even if you've got the best policies on the ground, uh, you need someone to actually implement that, them. Uh, those 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 capacities have actually hollowed out over, um, especially over the last two two to three decades. I would say, as you know, we've had these uh, these issues as far as state-owned enterprises are concerned, um, massive privatization is concerned, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, I, I your point on on China emerging as an economy that Pakistan can sell to and trade with is very important. And so, good segue to my to sort of the next part of our conversation, where I wanted to get your perspective on sort of BRI within South Asia or Greater South Asia, and then BRI writ large, right? So, yeah. if you look at historical trade linkages in the subcontinent, they've been east-west. Pakistan and CPEC is north-south on the axis, yeah. right? And yeah. connecting the Middle East into Xinjiang, etc. Um, and recently, there have been reports of the Chinese trying to negotiate a much, much bigger deal than CPEC with the Iranians. Um, that has caused concern, you know, not only here in Washington, D.C., but in New Delhi as well. Foreign Minister Jay Shankar just stopped on the way in Tehran, uh, on the way to SCO, and, and met with the Iranian foreign minister, and they reiterated their commitment and their relationship. How do you see this? Uh, emergence of this potential Iran-China deal and how will that link up with, you know, Chabahar linking up with Gwadar and, and the regional trade nexus that the Chinese are trying to, or at least indicating a desire to build? So I do agree. I think that the East-West, uh, you know, sort of flow of, of trade is has historically been important and it's going to remain important. So we can't, you know, sort of not uh, address it. Uh, and I think having all of these in with this investment into this in transport infrastructure if it takes place uh, you know uh, is will require that you know you develop these sort of east west linkages as well uh, as far as uh, this whole uh, you know the iran china deal is concerned it's not been signed the process yet but there's strong indication that it will uh, and it uh, geostrategically in terms of pakistan you know of course uh, you've got China, uh, you've got India out of Chabahar, so you know it's 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 uh, it's something to celebrate. Um, again, uh, those linkages between China and Iran uh, are important as far as Pakistan is concerned because you know it could provide uh, the route for the traffic, whether it's you know the flow of Iranian oil from uh, uh, from Iran through to Xinjiang. Uh, or or the flow of goods, the flow of goods, of course, is continuing on many, many uh, other factors as well. Uh, so the short answer in terms of geostrategic, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, the advantage that it gives Pakistan, it's there. Um, in terms of the long-term benefits as far as CPEC is concerned and the emergence of these regional uh, trade linkages, I think the jury is still out there. There are, there are lots and lots of pressures, you know, we don't know how uh, America is going to respond 
two Chinese companies that actually enter uh, into the Iranian uh, market, you know, how, how they're going to circumvent or deal with the American sanctions that are in place uh, on uh, Iran, how that's going to happen and how that's going to affect their operations there in Pakistan, whether they actually go through with much of the investment, uh, uh, you know, how, uh, because there's an alternate route as well, right? So if you look at uh, Iran, you know, they can go through Central Asia and then get to uh, China as well. So does it make sense to actually go through Pakistan to actually transport uh, the, the goods and services that they're trying to export uh, through to China? And, and this deal is going to be heavily contingent on the flow of natural resources from Iran uh, through to China. So which route does that actually take? That is an important question as far as Pakistan is concerned. Now, on the question of the ports, uh, on the question of Chabahar versus uh, Gawadar, again, Gawadar is an interesting case study because a lot of people in Pakistan actually say uh, that you know the, the natural radiation zone from Gawadar is not aimed at Pakistani market as such, right? So it's aimed at uh, traffic that will generate from Central Asia and Xinjiang, which then goes to Gawadar. Um, and there have been questions because, you know, whether the Central Asian states most definitely have the capacity uh, to actually, you know, sort of uh, be seen as important markets as far as Gawadar is concerned. Uh, so there are those questions. Um, I, I really quickly, I think the, the, the interesting example for Gawadar was, I think it was two years ago or something, if I remember correctly, when they did one convoy that went up north and then came back south. And the funny thing that was not covered particularly in, in depth in the media was that while the goods came in and the containers were full of goods going up, they had to, to conv uh, fully complete the journey. They had to send empty containers down south because there wasn't anything to flow down. And yeah. out from Goa, they're primarily because of the point you're making, right? It's like, what goods are you are you trying to sell on the way out from that? From that, because Pakistan is an importer, exports are either focused on the Karachi route out, or exactly. there isn't nothing else to sell exactly. to the rest of the region. Exactly. So, so as far as Gawadar's, at least the short to medium term is concerned, uh, you know, developing that sort of uh, the traffic is is going to be uh, problematic. Uh, the, strategic, the, the strategic importance of Gawadar, of course, is there. Um, Chabahar, uh, on the other hand, and again, uh, if you look at the larger plans as far as Gawadar is concerned, the idea is to have transshipment facilities over there, uh, some sort of you know, assembly to deal with the kind of problem that you uh, have rightly identified, you know, that you have some sort of traffic that goes out from Gawadar as well. Of course, uh, the Afghan transit uh, trade is now taking place through Gawadar to a certain extent as well. Um, but coming back to the point about this, the competition between Jawahar or the cooperation between Jawahar and uh, Gawadar, I think it, it remains to be seen how Jawahar is actually developed by the Chinese now that the Indians are out. Uh, I don't think they'll probably want uh, to have uh, competitive, you know, sort of uh, ports right next to each other. They'll probably want something different from both ports. Uh, it remains to be seen how, how it evolves because as I said, the deal has not been signed as yet. There's a lot of conjecture uh, on how things will evolve. Um, but, China, but Iran does give certain advantages as far as, you know, uh, which aren't there in the case of Pakistan. You know, um, 
so if you look at the human development indicators, for example, they're better in Iran as compared to Pakistan. Uh, it's a more affluent society in terms of economic, uh, you know, sort of prowess as well. Uh, education levels are better. Uh, so those advantages, politically, one can argue that it's a little more stable. Uh, as it has as natural resources to export. Resources, of course, that's that's the elephant in the room. But I mean, apart from the natural resources, there are other advantages that that uh, yeah. Iran offers as well. Uh, but of course, uh, the the major problem is that you know how do you circumvent U.S. Uh, you know uh, the, these these sanctions on the country, and how do you ensure that your firms do not get affected? Especially now that Chinese state-owned enterprises, a lot of these firms want have the ambition to grow, to grow uh, globally as well. So would they want to, you know, sort of, uh, uh, or do they want that additional headache of dealing with the U.S.'s ire as well, especially since there's a cross-partisan support uh, in Washington on uh, controlling China or dealing with China. Uh, so, so those risks remain as far as the Chinese are concerned. Um, so on, on that, that bit, I think it's, it's going to be interest, an interesting uh, yeah. few years, as especially now. Uh, and I, and, and yeah. I would say that, you know, the one point I would disagree with you on is that I wouldn't count India out from Chabar just yet. I think the Iranians are playing an interesting game as well, where my view at least is that they will watch what happens here in the U.S. in November. And if there is a change of administration, is there an opening to go back to JCPOA and get back on the table? And they will use that to negotiate, at least from their perspective, a better deal, either from the Chinese or from the Americans or both. And you are right, the sanctions issue is real. For example, when the, before the JCPOA, the sanctions were at their peak and India wanted to buy energy from Iran, they had to firewall off their companies and have a swap agreement and do it very tactfully, even though the United States was unhappy with that. Um, but they had to firewall these companies to make sure that, you know, they weren't hit by the sanctions that were coming their way. But I think the end of the year and early 2021 will be interesting, wherever the election goes, because yeah. if Donald Trump comes back, then for sure the Iranians are going to go in the Chinese camp. Yeah. If there's a Joe Biden administration, there might be an opening to realize and the Iranians may take advantage of that to play the Chinese against the Americans and the Indians and say, well, we can go either side. Let's see who offers the better terms. Well, that's true. That's that's true. That's a very good point that you raise. Uh, most everyone, and the, the interesting thing is that a lot of these things are actually fluid, right? You've got no permanent uh, friends or enemies. It depends on how uh, the situation sort of goes. And that's, that's so the earlier, just uh, uh, linking it to the earlier discussion that we had, I think uh, the statements that came from uh, Ellis Wells, for example, on uh, CPEC itself uh, actually helped Pakistan or improve the negotiation uh, power of, of Pakistan as well, uh, because you know there's it's it's up to the Chinese to actually raise their game uh, as far as these investments are concerned. And you're right, you know it depends on how uh, U.S. the host economy actually use these opportunities uh, to improve what we're getting out of that uh, old relationship. Yeah, and I want to quickly you know speak coming back to Pakistan and and you know. Um, where things are now, there's talk of uh, Xi Jinping coming back to Pakistan towards the end of the year, at least there are indications of that. 
back a few years ago, Khurram Hussain famously, you know, published the Joint Coordination Committee's CPEC 2.0 plans, which are about agricultural investments and things like that. Exactly. And at that time, SNIC Balo was like, no, 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 we're not doing this. This is not secret. But everyone knew that, you know, it would make sense. It would make sense to go down that route if you were China and if you're Pakistan as well, because agriculture, for example, needs a lot of investments. Um, where do you see CPEC going from here on out now that the early harvest phase is over? What are the opportunities for both countries to invest in Pakistan? And what are some of the challenges and risks that you see that Pakistan in particular must navigate to make sure that the promise of CPEC is fulfilled for the economic development and betterment of Pakistani citizens? So uh, the biggest uh, challenge, I think, is, is the geopolitical uh, bit as well. How do you balance the discussion that we were having earlier about the Iranians and their wish to balance, you know, uh, their own interests versus the U.S. versus the Iran and China? I think that's going to be a major risk as far as whichever, uh, you know, sort of administration comes uh, in, in power in Washington. I think that's going to be a major, you know, sort of uh, balancing act as far as Pakistan's concerned. On the domestic front, I think, again, uh, the discussion that we were having earlier about how do you, now that you've got all of this investment in, uh, or all of these uh, projects now built, how do you use them in, in the most productive uh, fashion? I think that's going to be a major, major challenge as far as the Pakistani uh, policy making uh, or policy makers are concerned. Um, for in, in terms of FDI, for example, you know, you, we've been touting the fact that, you know, uh, FDI has been going up, for example, went to $2.5 billion even last year, despite all of the problems. Uh, but what sort of FDI do, does Pakistan want? What sort of FDI is the most important as far as Pakistan is concerned? Because again, there's a lot of literature out there which talks about how, uh, you know, different types of uh, foreign direct investment have different sort of effects on the local economy. Much of the FDI that we've been witnessing over the last two or decade, uh, has been market seeking. So you look at banking, you look at uh, telecommunications, you look at the power sector, it's been market seeking, uh, you know, uh, FDI, which, which sort of wants to tap into this, uh, the massive, you know, uh, domestic economy that exists in Pakistan. Uh, on the other hand, you know, if you look at, you gave the example of Vietnam earlier, if you look at uh, the examples of Southeast Asia uh, and, uh, you know, other countries that have been excess, successful as far as the Export-led model of development is concerned. Uh, they've been able to attract a lot of FDI, which is efficiency-seeking, right? Uh, that you become a part of global value chains. Again, you know the the terms in which you become a part of global value chains is again open to debate, and we can talk about that if you want. Uh, but they've been very relatively successful in terms of tapping uh, those those sort of uh, value chains, which has not been the case as far as Pakistan is concerned. Um, so if if uh, Promote these special economic zones. Uh, what uh, you know, because you've had experiences with developing export from EPZs as well in the past, uh, and industrial estates, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, most of them have been abject failures. Um, so, what what is going to be different this time? If you and, do and, and we want to build, we want to build more of them, even though the last ones are not as successful as they should yeah. have been. Exactly. So that's, that's, that's one of the most important questions. What is going to be so special uh, in these economic zones, which is not going to repeat the problems uh, that you had uh, with your EPZs or with your industrial estates, etc. And I think that conversation has not taken, play, play, taken place as far as uh, the 
Pakistanis at that time. You know, my whole discussion uh, during the time that I was in Pakistan, I, I think that's that part has not been thought uh, through uh, very well, uh, which is a function of multiple factors, and we can talk about them, which which are related to Pakistan's domestic political economy. What are some of those? And I I want to quickly jump into that because that's an interesting discussion worth having as well. And the reason why I do that is because, for example, I was in. Pakistan last summer, and this was in Karachi before and during the rains came. They were not as bad as this season, but the city was still underwater. Yeah. And yeah. I had to go to site, and I had to drive to site to meet someone um, to talk about some biodegradable jute bags that they were making, right? And I go to this area, and this guy has a small factory. He's a small business owner who exports a decent amount of goods to Europe and has had... I spoke with him, and he was like, yeah, we've had an uptick in demand from Europe because they're switching away from plastic bags and they're interested in jute and biodegradable cotton stuff, etc. So he was, you know, uh, optimistic about the future. But the drive in was painful. And I was just thinking to myself, both on the way in and on the way out, like, imagine this is an exporter who's not super big, but there are big factories around all over, you can see, just a truck that comes in and goes out is slow inefficient, the repair costs go up, the driver wages go up, everything, all the costs at a micro level associated with that are up, which makes your export uncompetitive. Like if you compare it to Vietnam or Bangladesh, the straight highway you get out, right? Um, And so what are, that was just one example that I thought of was like, how are you going to export from your industrial site to the port to the rest of the world when the journey which should take 30 minutes takes an hour and a half just because of the poor quality of the roads and yeah. the infrastructure around. Yeah. So from your perspective, what are some of these issues that domestically constrain Pakistan's ability to be an export powerhouse? So uh, the, the, the one is the incentive structure that you, you know, alluded to in part. Uh, so, um, you know, if you look at the incentive structure and the way that it's evolved, uh, especially again over the last 10 to 20, 10 to 20 odd years, uh, there's been this implicit, you know, sort of focus on uh, developing the unproductive sectors of the economy as opposed to, you know, sort of focusing on developing uh, the productive sectors of the economy. You give the example of uh, Bangladesh uh, as, you know, the emergence of Bangladesh as as uh, as an export powerhouse is is extremely interesting and offers a lot of policy lessons as far as Pakistan is concerned. You know, you have to have this focus uh, on tapping these international markets and there has to be a consensus between uh, the various stakeholders. So Bangladesh is not the most efficient uh, public sector. It does not have the most efficient public sector in the world. They've got problems with corruption. They've got problems of, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 a very fragmented political economy as well. However, they've been able to grow because there is at least this consensus between different stakeholders that this is the route that we need to actually take, uh, you know, going forward if there has to be some sort of a sustainable uh, development, uh, sustainable in terms of uh, the long term or or short to medium term, you know, uh, having growth rates uh, is concerned. That sort of consensus is missing as far as, uh, you know, Pakistan is concerned. Um, Couple that with this whole uh, incentive structure which is geared towards the more unproductive sectors of the economy, uh, lack of long-term credit, uh, a, a political economy which is not favorable to, uh, you know, sort of focusing on exports apart from flat fuels, etc. Rent-seeking, 
rent seeking is a massive and again you know there are different there's a lot of literature on how there are different types of rents uh, as well and rents uh, are not always negative uh, but it again sort of links to this whole uh, incentive structure that you're generating for uh, the economy uh, as well or for uh, you know those those who are engaged in the productive sectors of the economy I'll, I'll, I'll pause I'll, I'll interject here you, you mentioned rent seeking and i want yeah. you to dive a bit deeper into this because in a way in the pakistani discourse rent seeking is often equated with corruption and there is overlap between the two but what you said is actually going to have people up in with pitchforks coming at both of us because i've written about this as well is that when you look at the literature high rates of corruption do not equal to low rates of development and growth am i you know and you said something similar where rent seeking is not always negative yeah. but just give a couple of examples of what this rent seeking is in the pakistani context and can it be the grease in often in other societies that moves the wheels of the economy forward so i'll i'll give you a we'll come back to the example of of the power sector for example uh when you give uh in the case of pakistan in the case of the the power projects that you've negotiated since the nine, mid 1990s uh, and there's uh, the report that that just came out as well sort of talks about this as well uh, when you give uh, guaranteed returns indexed to the us dollar these high rates of return etc uh, you take away the incentive of the investor uh, to actually be more uh, efficient or uh, you know to invest in longer term projects uh, if you look at the earlier projects that came in online for example oil etc so you've created an incentive structure which is actually extremely problematic as far as uh, you know sort of having uh, the investor move towards a more efficient sort of productive system of concern same as the case for example with sugar um, you know we have this whole sugar uh, issue that's come out um, you know sugar is is a, is a classic example of of a rent seeking uh, you know sector of the economy uh, you know whenever there's there's uh, there's a glut of of sugar in the market uh, the the exporters or the sugar manufacturers uh, uh, take the pretext that you know oh you know uh, we have to pay the farmers we're not able to do that so we need to export this sugar and because they're not competitive on an inter- in the international market uh, therefore you know they need some sort of subsidies from the uh, from uh, the government to actually export this sugar Uh, and and speaking of speaking of consensus it is probably the one of the only <laughs> sectors in the pakistani political economy where there's political consensus on subsidies when they're needed exactly 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 uh, on the other hand uh, when we one talks about productive uh, rents for example uh, one looks at the examples uh, and there's a lot of historical literature out there from south korea for example learning rents you give uh, you give people the capacity because this again this from the literature one can see that learning or or incorporating new technologies of production etc is not a frictionless process there's a learning process that's associated with it and there's a risk that the individual entrepreneur is actually taking so how does uh, how do you create those rents in the market for that learning to actually take place uh, by by your uh, you know sort of entrepreneurs so those sort of rents are there as well um similarly you know if there is someone there there could be performance based rents the east asian economies especially south korea is a classic example of of those performance based rents as well so one of the things that they've done they did quite effectively in the 60s and the 70s was uh, that that rent was associated with getting capital at lower rates uh, as compared to the market 
So those exporters that actually met those targets, the targets that were set by the government, got that subsidized credit. On the other hand, those exporters that did not, uh, you know, sort of meet those targets, however powerful they might be, they did not get uh, those below market rates of, of uh, you know, uh, credit, which was so important for them to actually expand. So you've got all of these examples uh, of such productive rents that are out there. Uh, sadly speaking, that's not uh, happened in the case of Pakistan. Uh, you know, Aptima itself or the textile market, uh, the textile uh, lobby itself is partly to blame, but that's partly to blame as well because they've, got, they've had multiple incentive packages that have come in, uh, that have been implemented. The quality of implementation one can, you know, sort of always debate about, uh, but it's created these perverse incentives that, that, you know, I've talked about. And changing that incentive structure is going to be extremely difficult. Uh, you know, how do you create those incentives for people to invest in learning? You gave the example of the biodegradable, uh, you know, uh, stuff that that, uh, that the manufacturer was making. Uh, so those are growth markets that, that could be tapped. But how do you create those incentive structures for people to actually tap into those, uh, to those growing markets? How do you deal with the risks associated with uh, with those markets right now, if you look at the power sector, for example, and you look at some of the largest players in the market, uh, many of them were actually associated with the manufacturing sector and then now, you know, sort of move to the power sector. Because again, it's the incentives that are there. Uh, it's those guaranteed returns, it's those dollar-based uh, returns that you're giving. Again, you know, one can debate on, on liquidity, etc., etc. But in essence, those contracts are the way that they are. They're backed by sovereign guarantees. They're backed uh, by U.S. dollar-based returns, so all of those, uh, you know, sort of guarantees might be important, but they create perverse incentives. Yeah, and I think the 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 you know the big example that comes to my mind is like your incentive structure right now is aligned towards the Malik Riazes of the world who can occupy land of poor villagers and then the Supreme Court can give its tacit approval, say pay 400 billion rupees and you're done. Whereas the incentive should be that 400 billion rupees that this guy has captured from stolen land should be put in productive assets, like yeah. at least the ones that build export capacity because that's exactly. what Pakistan needs. And exactly. that's the biggest you know, example one can think of, of the negative rents and the incentives in the yeah. economy. Yeah, so, so this, this whole focus on real estate as the only uh, way forward. So I don't know, you know about Karachi, but if one goes to uh, to Punjab, the, the discussion that one has <laughs> across the board is, you know, oh, you know, that society is coming up, you know, it's it's so lucrative, you know, you, you should park your money over there or something of that sort. Yeah. So that, that, that is, that is a, a major problem. Uh, again, uh, linking it back to CPEC or the second phase of CPEC, uh, you know, if there is some sort of uh, and that's a big if uh, change in the incentive structure. If there is, you know, more productive investment that comes in, and there are linkages with the local economy, which have been missing uh, in the case of many of these foreign direct uh, investment projects that we've seen in the past two decades, uh, then you know you slowly begin to change uh, the way that people are attuned to doing work, and you begin to you know sort of build that productive capacity or catch up in the parlance of, of uh, you know, sort of heterodox economy, uh, economics. If that does not happen, then, you know, uh, what do you do with all that, all that investment? I think it's, it's going to remain a big question mark. And I'll just, you know, one quick correction on that, that at least in a lot of the 
investments, quote unquote, that have come in Pakistan. The problem is that they're not risk capital investments. These are primarily linked to sovereign backed loans, which means that if you don't do what you're describing, eventually you will be in a debt trap, right? And it's not unique to China. Pakistan was in a debt trap when the Paris uh, club debt was restructured back in 2001-2002 by General Musharraf after the war on terror. Pakistan has gone to the IMF multiple times before China was involved in the economy in the way that it is now. And really the question is for Pakistan and Pakistan's policymakers and elite internally to realize that if they're going to continue down this path, then there is disaster up ahead. And it is in many instances, at least if you look at the human development angle, Pakistan is behind sub-Saharan Africa now in many cases, right? Yes. Because of the poor performance of the last two, three decades. Um, so I think that really is the, the internal cohesion must be there. And again, it has to be there at the macro and the micro level. For example, I'll go back to that manufacturer of jute bags, right? He had a shipment returned back to him because he had used styrofoam in one of the handles of the bags. And he did not know that that sort of meant that you were not no longer biodegradable or not. And no one was there to tell him about that. And again, if you're going to promote your export at some level, at the micro level, the government and the state, going to your point about state playing a bigger role, has to play a bigger role in things like that to make sure people understand what the quality dynamics are, what the standards are, what do you need to do to sell to future markets, not the markets of the past. And I think that that's been primarily missing in the Pakistani context. No, I, I completely agree. So the role of the state and facilitation, and the, thank you for bringing up the HDI as well, because that's one thing that I uh, wanted to uh, talk a little bit about. So uh, again, if, if you were expecting, or if there was an expectation that, you know, the early harvest phase would be there, and then you would have, uh, five years of industrial cooperation, which are now going to start uh, whenever they start. There had to be some sort of investment in developing the human capital around it as well, right? So just having a youth bunch itself does not mean that you're going to be able to take advantage of the demographic dividend that, that comes with it. There has to be some sort of a thinking uh, about how you're going to, you know, sort of uh, equip uh, people with the tools to be productive, you know, sort of members uh, of the economy. That has not taken place. So if you look at the technical and vocational education that's taken place or the technical and vocational education uh, to a large extent, uh, it's all geared towards exporting uh, surplus labor to the Gulf or to other countries. It's not geared towards uh, you know, developing uh, people to take advantages of these sort of opportunities as they emerge. Uh, and that's been one of the most abject, uh, uh, you know, in my opinion, uh, failures that's taken place. And that's that's something that's that's consistent over time. That's not something uh, that that uh, you know, sort of any uh, uh, policymaker or any uh, government has actually been able to focus on in a meaningful way. Uh, again, I think when we're talking about incentives, how do you generate those incentives to actually invest in many of these? Uh, these projects, which are apart from like a water that we used to, uh, and how do you create that those sort of you know uh, the, those sort of learning uh, capabilities as far as uh, the local economy is concerned and local uh, you know your, your youth are concerned? And I think that's that's one of the major questions uh, concerned because that is going to be an obvious problem once if a lot of this productive investment does come in. Yeah, and I think like I was looking at data yesterday. Um, 
if you look at UNESCO's data for Pakistan in terms of literacy from 15 to 24 year old age bracket, going back to your point on youth pulse, it's about 73, 74%. Um, the same statistic for Bangladesh is 94%. Um, and, and, you know, that's just total, right? And then if you look yeah. at women, Bangladesh is much ahead than Pakistani women. Yeah. And lo and behold, you understand how and why their garment sector came up because it was primarily driven by educated with base, women with basic literacy yeah. skills who could work in factories and, you know, be, be employed and Pakistan does not have that. So even if you bring in those investments, well, if your if you're labor, younger labor in particular cannot have basic literacy skills, then what are they going to produce is, is a yeah. question that, you know, we need to answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I completely, uh, I've been talking to some of my, uh, some people that I know in the textile market, and that's the that is a major issue as far as they're concerned. You know, how do you incentivize? How do you get people uh, to work? Uh, but it's also uh, that uh, I know that it's. Uh, but I wanted to make this point. Um, it's also a lack of imagination because uh, our our and you alluded to this uh, as well. But it's also lack of imagination as far as uh, end markets are concerned. Uh, exporters remain focused on the Western market, uh, on you know exporting to uh, to the US and to Europe because that's their comfort zone. Um, I've asked quite a few people after CPFTA to whether you know they've, they've sort of looked at this further. Uh, there's a wonderful study that uh, the Pakistan Business Council actually came up with as well, looking at the tariff lines uh, and, and which products Pakistan could take advantage of. Uh, and of course, COVID hit after that CPFTA too. Uh, but there's not been a lot of work that's actually been done by major exporters uh, in thinking about how they can take advantage of the, the, the CPFTA too. So it's also a weakness uh, as far as you know uh, the the Pakistani uh, you know entrepreneur and industrial class uh, is concerned as well. Uh, this lack of imagination, both from a product angle as well as from a market angle, I think, uh, needs to evolve. And, and as you rightly pointed out, uh, the state has to play a role, an increasing role in it as well. And it's not that the state is doing a favor to anyone. If one looks at multiple instances of where uh, successful long-term growth has actually taken place, uh, the state has taken a more active role uh, or in terms of industrial policy, in terms of picking winners. Uh, in the case of East Asia, in the case of China, for example, or in facilitating by providing access to information, as you uh, pointed out in the case of uh, the styrofoam and, and that exporter. Um, that is not the case as far as the Pakistani uh, state and its role in the economy is concerned. Yeah, and ultimately, and you know, I'll jump to asking you about some book recommendation. I'm mindful of time as well, but the the one point that I always, you know, I've increasingly come back to now is um, it pays better to be operating as an economic agent in Pakistan than in Pakistan. Um, and so, in a way, what you're describing are things that entrepreneurs should be doing, but the incentives are skewed in a way where investing in Beria Town files and DHS City files or the next housing development files is has a better ROI than you know trying to figure out a new market and making things and running after refunds and things like that because yeah. it's just painful. It's hard work compared to the other, and the returns are higher on the other side as well in financial terms as yeah. well. 
I, I, I completely agree. I think that's a, that's, a, that's an apt description, Pakistan. <laughs> yeah. So on that note, I, I, you, you know, you've done fantastic research on BRI and CPEC, and you know, a lot of people ask me every time I forget. You didn't ask for a book recommendation. So what are two or three interesting books that? you know, you would recommend that listeners uh, pick up and read to understand not only CPEC, I would say, but China's global ambitions or what China is trying to do both economically and geopolitically. So there's a, there's a 2009 book uh, uh, by Martin Jock and it's called When China Rules the World. I think that's, that's a good primer to actually start understanding uh, what it means for China to actually evolve and become one of the biggest or the, the most economic, important economic actor in the world and how that uh, that is different from the Western conception of development to a large extent. I think that's that's uh, that's that's sort of gives you a good uh, a good uh, you know sort of background. Uh, then uh, Bruno Macias's uh, Belt and Road uh, Initiative. I think that's that's a good read as well. Again, these are easy reads, uh, uh, which which sort of gives you one an idea of why. Uh, it's happening, what's happening is actually happening. And if one wants to, you know, sort of look at it from a more historical angle, I think Peter Frankopan's study on the new Silk Road is, is wonderful as well. Uh, on a more critical, you know, sort of a view of, of Chinese investments, I think there's loads of books out there. Uh, but one stands out, I think Terry Brown's uh, CEO China Inc. Uh, is an extremely interesting read once again. Uh, very easy to read. Uh, I think it, that sort of gives uh, one a more, you know, sort of critical view of, of China and how uh, global political economy evolves, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, from a historical perspective, I think the historicization is actually missing, and I think uh, there's a wonderful book. It's a little voluminous, but I think uh, it's important to understand the, the, you know, sort of the way that the Chinese system evolved. Is uh, Deng Xiaoping's a biography by Ezra Vogel. Ezra Vogel's based in Harvard. That's that's a wonderful read, and I think um, you know uh, the discussion about uh, special economic zones, pragmatism in terms of uh, looking at different sort of models to actually reform. Uh, that you know the the kind of insights that you get from there and how the Chinese systems actually evolve, I think, are wonderful. Uh, for those who are uh, you know looking at it from a more uh, scholarly perspective, again from a Chinese perspective, which is uh, missing uh, in the broader debate. There's a handbook of on the BRI, uh, which has been co-edited by Kai Fung uh, and Peter Nolan. Uh, that gives, and that's by, written by scholars from the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. So all you're going to get through that thick volume uh, is views from the Chinese, uh, you know, sort of uh, view about the Belt and Road Initiative, about these various corridors, etc. So I think those, those books uh, should help. Well, that's a that's an in, that's an amazing list, and uh, I think I'll definitely start with Deng Xiaoping's biography because you know that pragmatism of the Chinese is something that at least Pakistanis can also learn from. For example, you know they don't recognize Taiwan, but China and Taiwan trade ties are phenomenally strong, and there is a lot both China and Taiwan has gained, even though they're in a state of enmity, you know, yeah. among the two people. Yeah. And so there's something to learn from that pragmatism as well. So, Doctor Savdar. Thank you so much for joining us. This was a fantastic discussion. I think we're going to have you on again, maybe once we have more color on where Iran and China are going and the U.S. elections have gone, because that will ultimately change the contours of what China and how China operates in the region and around the world. So thank you for your time. And this was wonderful. Thank you very much for having me. And it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'd like to come back whenever you know, you call me as well, time permitting, of course.
course. Yeah. Thank you so much for that.